Hello love, I'm Glenn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce you to some people who embody what it means to be absolute champions. These are individuals who have inspired, stood up for change and shined very, very bright. From superstar highs to the awkward teenage years, come with me on a journey of discovery to find out what makes these people my heroes and I guarantee they will be yours too because we can all be heroes. Oh, this week's a goodie. I'm absolutely ecstatic to talk to today's guest. It's Bimini. They're a dear friend of mine, drag icon, and probably the world's most famous vegan. To me, they are the real winner of RuPaul's Drag Race. They were robbed. There are no rules to drag. The ultimate thing is just to be kind to people. That's my goal. With bag loads of charisma, style, and an unbelievably infectious cackle, this bendy bitch is an East London legend, and now a high fashion darling. I often feel like I'm not even doing drag. <laughs> I'm doing like a version of me. But beneath the wig and the war paint, they are so much more. And the heart of my guest is a kind, sensitive, wonderful being who I absolutely adore. It's Bimini time. What a year it's been for you. Before lockdown, you went, mm-hmm. went into life as a, not regular, but a citizen of the world that yeah. kind of walked down the street, nobody knew. And <laughs> as we're coming out of lockdown, you're another year older, but you're also a fucking superstar. Well, now I just get oat milk thrown at me every time I walk down the road. Because <laughs> everyone's just hoping I'm about to jump into the splits. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know, has it sunk in yet? What I found weird was like when it was airing, I was taking Disco, my little doggy, out for walks and people would stop me to have a photo with me. And it's like half six in the morning in the park and I'm just walking Disco and I've not brushed my teeth. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's been amazing. Like I went out with Taste and Ahura on like the first Saturday that we were allowed to eat outside and we went out in Soho and it was chaos. But obviously Soho... As someone that's just come off Drag Race, going into Soho, like yeah. everyone's going to know because that's like the demographic. But um, I mean, I've been loving it. As someone that, I, you know, I've known you a long time and I feel like you were so prepared for all of this. And I think that's quite a rare thing. And I've been thinking a lot about your rise, actually. And I might be wrong on this, but I feel like the rise was happening before the show. Yeah. And I remember seeing this fire in you to succeed mm-hmm. and this drive and determination. Every time I see you, I think, wow, <laughs> she is going to get it. Whatever it is, she is going to get it. So where did that come from? And what was that switch moment for you where you go, no more after parties, no mm-hmm. more messy gutter action. I've got an opportunity here. I'm going to run. If I'd have done this when I was 19, 20, it would be a different ball game. My consciousness has switched and my mentality has changed. And I was partying for days back then. And I feel like I would just waste this opportunity. But now I'm ready to take it. And I feel like when I started doing drag, when I first entered Lip Sync 1000, me and Barb's, we started together. Me and my drag sis Barb's. You know Barb's. Of course. We started together and no one took us seriously, but I think it's because we weren't taking ourselves seriously. And the, like, the drag scene was already flourishing and it was always doing so well. And we were just like, oh, another two drag queens joining the circuit. But I love being underestimated. <laughs> oh, it's so powerful. <laughs> yeah, because it means there's less expectations of what you can do. So when you do good, people are surprised as opposed to like people expecting something and then you letting them down. Yeah. I share that with you. I've always been that one that people have counted out, ruled out, yeah. the invisible one. And it's amazing because no one's expecting anything from you. So you over deliver and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, 
damn, yeah. damn. I didn't see that <laughs> didn't person see it coming. coming. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what I did. And I think when Mystic the Pink happened yes. and I won that and I'm still the reigning Mystic the Pink yeah, right now. Yeah. <laughs> Due to lockdown, you've been Mystic the Pink for three years. <laughs> that was a pivotal moment for me because it was like, I had started taking it a bit more seriously towards the end of 2018. Me and Barb's were actually getting paid for gigs then and we weren't just getting taken to Latitude to roll around in the mud anymore (laughs) for a few drink tokens. And I started saying that I can do this. I started believing in myself a bit more. And then when I did win Missing the Pink, that was a turning point because my mum came. That was the first time she saw me in drag and that was the first time she saw me perform. And then she kind of got it then. And that was a big thing because it was like, okay, I've got my mum's support. And I remember saying to myself, okay, if you want to sustain this, you need to unlearn the behaviour that you've taught yourself that you have to have a drink when you're performing. Because I was doing that. Because it would go hand in hand whenever I started drag. So I did a year of sobriety. I actually went sober on the 1st of June. I did over a year. I have a drink now, but I'm a lot better at controlling it now. I would never say I had a drinking problem, but it was like... I can't work five days a week and drink at every single one of them. Completely. My mum works five days a week and she doesn't get pissed in the hairdressers every day. So (laughs) I stopped drinking on the 1st of June for a year and it was a week before Mighty Hoopla. And I remember being like, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to perform on stage? I've never done a performance without having like one or two drinks before. Like never bladdered, but you associate having a gin and tonic with relaxing you to get into it. Of course. But it's about unlearning that behaviour, which I managed to do. I remember uh, missing the pink. I remember that night and I mean, no discredit to everyone because that was a phenomenal amount of performers, but Mm. you came to win. I saw it straight away. The minute you walked in, I remember being really touched by how close you were with your mum as well. I feel like that level of connection that you have with your mum, you also put that into your chosen family. Yeah. You know, you've definitely not pulled away from that. If anything, you've amped it up. Mm -hmm. I feel like you're a great example of how to be when you thrive in this community. Oh, well, thank you. I think I'm very lucky of the people that I've been around. The people on the scene that I'm really close with that have allowed me to think that I can do this and go on to do it. So having the support of my mum, having the support of my friends, I feel like Buffy, the vampire slayer. (laughs) (laughs) She couldn't have slayed all those vampires if it wasn't for her best friends. You were like the ultimate 90s reference, yeah, Tim. Really so look, let's talk about that little show that you went on. Oh, yeah. I think that those shows can be really tricky because I think sometimes you go on them and maybe you don't come across as the person that you really are. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the person that I saw was exactly who you are, which was so wonderful to experience. And I felt like you just got it. So how important was it not to get caught up in the noise of a show like that and to keep your focus and values? I think me and Ella, who we do a lot of my outfits, Mm. we actually did my outfits for Missing the Pink. Ella did five of my looks for Drag Race. Going into it was very important to keep that authenticity of who I was. So we were like, don't go in there and fake it. Don't go in there and like be a bitch. Don't be someone that you're not. Yeah, you could totally see it. I think the one thing that I noticed was... This steely composure. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, it was like watching an athlete. It really was. Where does that come from? Because I know that you're one healthy bitch, but Mm. talk me through that level of self-care to get to that place. I mean, it's a work in progress. Even now that I'm like working pretty much every day, you've got to take time for yourself. And that's really important. And what I was trying to do every morning 
when I woke up was have 10 minutes before we had to go in to myself where I was just with my thoughts, compose myself basically to get in there. And I think being part of the competition show, I was able to disassociate myself with what was going on and just throw myself into it like an athlete. I think the one thing that drag queens and anyone that works or comes from our industry understands is chaos. Yeah. Right? Especially on a show that's so slick like Drag Race, you see the first bit of application of makeup and then you're this gorgeous creature. But the chaos oh, yeah. that surrounds drag. Also, we've not come from a place where all of these opportunities were there for everyone. Like, think the Pink's a big one that paved the way for that. And like all of these communities that were there in place that allowed people to have these opportunities, they weren't always there. So we were used to a certain level of chaos. I remember going full time in drag was in 2019 and people were like, are you going to be able to do that? But drag in London especially was going at such a speed that there were opportunities for everyone. Things were opening up. Places wanted drag performers. Put a pin on drag for a minute. I want to take you back to baby Tommy. I want to take you back to great Yarmouth. All right. You're a 90s baby. And I want to know what really inspired you growing up or who really inspired you? When I was younger... I remember having this thought. My mum was a worker. She was a single mum when I was a wee wane. But she hustled. She worked every day. And I remember being at school and being envious of the kids whose mums would pick them up from school or whose mums weren't working. But it wasn't until I got a bit older that I realised that my mum did everything for me to have a better life. And she is my biggest inspiration for her work ethic because what she instilled in me is that you've got to go out there and get it because no one's going to give it to you. You ain't going to get it on a silver platter. You've got to work hard for it. And she kind of allowed me to have that mentality. And I'm very thankful for that, even if I didn't appreciate it when I was younger. Because what I also loved about my mum was that she was a businesswoman. She was a boss, but she'd always do it in like a pair of five inch heels. Like she's five foot, so she's short. So she'd always wear massive heels, but... She's always one that's massively inspired me for that. But then in terms of fashion, I got kind of obsessed with pop culture when I was an early teen. I loved Britney and I loved that whole like Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton. I really glamorised it, which is kind of problematic. But I think a lot of queers do. But now I think about the way that the media and people spoke about Britney. That was atrocious. Like that shouldn't have been allowed. But I fed into all of that, unfortunately. Like I wasn't like conscious of it at that time but I was always inspired by women don't you think that's when drag is the best I think because there is the kind of quite an old school way of drag that parodies women Mm -hmm. and not empowers and you're definitely part of that wave that celebrates women in all forms Mm -hmm. and also I think that you have a real grasp on the hardships and the attacks that women come under. Yeah. And it's almost part of what you do as a performer. Yeah, I think so. And I think it comes from like listening to my mum and experiences she's had that she doesn't even understand is misogynistic. And I'm like, the way you were treated as a woman in that industry, because you're a businesswoman, she's like, yeah, but that's just what men would say. And I'm like, yeah, but they shouldn't. But I think as well with Stick the Pink, being around that kind of energy... Sing the Pink was inclusive. We had T.T. Bang and Georgie B, who were drag queens. And there's no exclusion of anyone there. And that's something that I always try and project. And that's how it should be. And like the even idea that you can say that someone can't do drag goes against what drag is meant to be. Uh, completely, completely. Drag's an inclusive thing and anyone can do it. I mean, if you look at the identity of Sing the Pink, a part of it really does come from 
my working class roots and you know the fact that it started in a working men's club yeah and totally and the fact that I've always growing up felt invisible and that was a working class thing before it was a queer thing so for me that translated maybe without me knowing it to thousands and thousands of queer kids that were in their bedrooms feeling completely invisible I've definitely experienced that I think what I've learned though is that you've got to believe that what you want to say or what you have matters the world that we live in isn't really made for working class queer people. Damn right. These working class queer people are getting more opportunities that people are listening to and doors are opening up and it's a great thing. I think like when you hear people and especially like allies of the community or like straight women who would come to Sing the Pink because they felt accepted, which is mad because we think that they've got all of these venues and we don't have as many. But actually, they'll come to a place like Stink the Pink or The Glory because they're not going to get harassed by men. Have you ever experienced harassment? I mean, when you were younger and now as this gorgeous drag... <laughs> drag I was about to call you a drag onion. As this gorgeous drag onion that you are. <laughs> it's, the, it's the layers. That's it's a multi-layer drag onion. When I would say I've experienced harassment is if I'm in a tracksuit with a face on on the way to a gig, people don't know where to place me. But if I'm like full bimini in a look, heels, hair, everything, people can kind of be like, okay, that's what that is. Because society needs the binary. Society needs these places that they can put you so that they can feel, I'm not intimidated because that's what that is. Whereas that's why these conversations about gender and sexuality that are happening, people are scared of it. Because it holds a mirror up to them. Like, if you start having these conversations about deconstruction of gender and social conditioning, it makes people have to think about it. It opens it up a lot more. So I think that's the only reason I've experienced harassment is when people don't really get me. I think that was what was really nice on the show as well, is that you and, and Ginny especially, there were such amazing conversations that felt really inclusive you were allowing Mm. everybody to be in on the conversation they didn't feel don't take this the wrong way they weren't overly academic it was just a very down-to-earth conversation about gender and I think it really resonated Mm -hmm. did you go onto the show wanting to do that or was that just off the cuff that was a real like authentic conversation and moment I was even surprised that they had the cameras rolling at that point and I believe that is the way forward these debates about our human experiences. They're not debates. They're attacking that group. They're pushing a narrative and an agenda that they want people to believe. By having a trans person debating with someone that doesn't believe that that exists, when this trans person is standing there saying, this is how I felt all my life, this is who I am, and then there's someone saying, well, that's wrong because this is male and this is female and you can't do that. Like, it's not pushing the conversation forward. You're not having an honest conversation. Whereas what me and Ginny did was just two people that have experienced it that kind of opened up. I broke it down so simply being like, non-binary is not a new thing. It's a new term. There's people that have done it for years. There's cultures all around the world that celebrate that. And I think we've just got to a point where we're so used to this kind of Western idea of what gender is that we're just too scared to have the conversation. Well, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing that you did have the conversation. And I feel like those conversations are happening so much more. And, you know, you've been part of that. But what do you think future generations can do more? (laughs) Give us all the answers, Bim. Honestly, I think everything that we've done, everything that you've done with Sink the Pink, everything that I've spoken about, 
the new generation, yeah. they're way ahead. <laughs> My little sister's 14 and she's part of the community, LGBTQ plus community. She was able to come out when she was 12. And I think that's incredible because I knew at that age, but I didn't have the words. I didn't have the dialogue to be able to be open and honest about that. The fact that she can is amazing. At 14 years old, if I had known all about that, it would have just been a different experience. Because I think there's education. And even if it's through TikTok, that's like talking about that. And there's millions of people listening to it. And Whitney was right. Children of the future. <laughs> Whitney was right about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Like their social consciousness seems to be expansive. Like it seems to be so open to wanting what's right for people. It's such an interesting time, actually, because I feel like there are certain countries, there's certain places in the world, ours being one of them, actually, you know, London is amazing, especially yeah. for that. We are definitely pushing the conversations yeah. forward. But this is when social media and shows like Drag Race and crossing over from the underground into the mainstream, this is when the power of it is so huge because... Yeah we don't all have the opportunities that you and I have. Mm -hmm. There's countries around the world that even just for being suspected of being queer, gay, trans, yeah. you're, you know, it's happened a couple of days ago. Someone was beheaded know, in Iran. Yeah. It's, it's disgusting. We're great that we're able to be visible here. And visibility is yeah. everything, mm -hmm. right? And representation is everything. And I think it's sometimes underpinned and undervalued. For myself growing up, I didn't have a great deal of representation. Mm -hmm. And for me, Boy George was that first... Mm -hmm. I talk about Boy George a lot, but especially as I'm getting older, I'm realising how... How much of an impact? It was the impact. Yeah. It was the penny drop moment where I went, I'm so scared of you, and yet also I'm, like, attracted to you. Yeah. And I don't know what to do with it. It felt exhilarating, exciting. Who are those people for you? It's a weird one, I think, because I read a lot of fashion magazines when I was younger, and there was always this like idea of what androgyny is, and it's kind of something that I was like, I feel like that. I feel like I'm neither masculine nor feminine, and I always found that like fashion magazines that I was reading fetishized that almost. It empowered that on a magazine. If I'm walking down the road, I'm not empowered because people are giving me stick for it for being outwardly feminine. So you repress that. So I think like reading a lot of fashion magazines was like a big one for me. I remember like my dad showing me David Bowie and me being really confused by their identity of how they dressed and like what they spoke about. Yeah. I would say it wasn't until I moved to London and I was out in Soho witnessing it firsthand that I really saw it. Because I don't think there was really anyone in the 90s or the early noughties. Because even like my colleges, like I had a really good group of friends, but we were seen as a bit of weirdos. I was wearing like fishnets and moffy and fur coats and they're like smoking cigarettes and getting a Kate Moss tattoo and drinking Diet Coke, <laughs> <laughs> but was like not out yeah. at that moment because the conversation wasn't there. So it wasn't until I moved to London that I was like, oh, okay, I've gone from like that to this and I've, I'm seeing these people out in Soho. It was the first time I'd seen drag and it was the first time I'd seen kind of gender nonconformity. Yeah. I remember thinking like they're respected they're being like looked up to almost in the club. And it was the first time I'd seen it. And I think all of the people that I was around in the first year of fashion school, most people were queer. You didn't have to come out to anyone, which I was blown away by. And everyone was experimental. Everyone was really pushing it and like having fun. And I think that was the first time. I don't think there was anyone that I really grew up with in pop culture. Because Boy George had their moment in the 80s and people were like, is it a man or a woman? Like, what is it? Like, they were so confused by Boy George. And 
there wasn't anyone that was really like that for me, I don't think. I want to talk about transformation and the power of transformation. I was flicking through my phone. I've got all your back catalogue of all those images, <laughs> Bim. I found this image of you when you, I, I reckon it was about six years maybe ago. It's very early in your drag <laughs> career. Was I doing white face? White face, yeah. <laughs> Explain what your transformation process has been, where it's come from, where you're at now, and where also you hope it goes in the future. I think I often feel like I'm not even doing drag. <laughs> I'm doing like a version of me. I'm doing like an extension mm, of who I am. And I think when I started doing drag, I wasn't very confident. I basically came out of like a few hedonistic years in London where I partied quite a lot. All been lost, there. All been there, exactly. <laughs> but I lost a lot of confidence and I went travelling and I came back and I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I need to do. There's something that I need to be doing right now. And it's in this queer art form. And... When I started doing drag, I thought I had to paint myself like a clown and I had to do this version of like what I thought drag was. Yeah. And I think it wasn't until like I really knocked those notions out of my mind and I was like, oh, actually, I can do what I want. I can dress how I want and I can pull references from here that I really started blossoming as Bimini. And that was a transformative thing in my mind where I realised that there are no rules to drag. The ultimate thing is just to... Be kind to people. That's my goal. Ultimately, you can do what you want. The moment I realised that Bimini can be whoever I want Bimini to be, rather than who I think people expect her to be, that was when I really had that transformative moment. Do you think it's amazing that through your ultimate giving in to transformation of you, you transform the lives of other people because you're freeing them. When you free yourself, when you're completely authentically you... It's such an infectious and contagious thing and inspires others. So what do you want your legacy to be? That's a biggie. I just want it to be pushing the conversation for the younger generation to be more open and for the world to be more accepting. I want my little sister, who's 14 years younger than me, to grow up in a world that accepts her and there's opportunities for her in whatever she wants to do. And I just want it to keep moving forward. And I think that's what's important about having conversations in drag because drag is political. Even without people realising it is, it's an act of defiance of what society is expecting of you. And even if you don't mean to be political doing drag, you kind of are. And there's so many avenues now with it. And I think my legacy would just be keep it going, keep pushing that social consciousness, that awareness. Do you think drag can change the world? I think drag's changing the world. The thing is, we know drag for what it is. Yeah. A lot of people that watch Drag Race, for example, only know a certain part of drag, but we know drag that's like freeing and it's not about like looking passable as a woman. And that was another big thing I learned. It's like drag isn't female impersonation because we know drag kings. Mm. We know trans women that do drag. Like anyone can do it. You and I both come from our background isn't sitting at home doing YouTube tutorials. It is about the camaraderie of community and how important is community to you, in particular East London, where you are... I mean, there's going to be a statue, babes, in Dalston. Ridley Road Market, Bimini <laughs> at the end. <laughs> I think there's, like, times when I, like, someone pulls out an old photo of me and I'm like, oh, God, why are you Leave getting out. that out? Leave but, it out. But then I'm like, you know what? I'm so glad I went through all of that rather than sat in my bedroom for two years 
doing the perfect eye to look amazing the first time anyone sees me. I'm glad I looked a mess for about two and a half years. Because <laughs> it's about having fun and what you learn doing all of that. The shared experience yeah. as well, right? That's why I think on Drag Race, I was allowed to like get into it, but also have a laugh with it and not take it so seriously. Is because the world that I've come from has allowed me that. Like the world I've come from, we take what we do seriously because we love what we do, but mm. then we also, we take the piss out of it. And that's what drag should be, yes. always. I think you're right. I think if you're not self-deprecating, then you're not doing drag. Yeah. It is ridiculous at its very nature. Yeah, so absolutely. you've got to laugh at it. Yeah. All right. She is a published author. Mm, very soon. It's so exciting. So talk to me about that. Is that something you've always wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, I studied journalism and I think writing was always something I love to do. And I'm just so glad that I'm getting the opportunity to do this. And the book, it's not academic, it's conversational, but it has references and things from Judith Butler. But then it's talking about Kate Moss as well and like Pamela Anderson. Mm. The idea that when I walked into Drag Race, I walked in with a big blonde hair because I wanted people to just think I was going to be a bimbo because people see that as a weakness of femininity. Whereas I was like spinning that on its head because a lot of... Females that I've been inspired by, like Pamela, are someone that does a lot of social activism. And Dolly Parton as well, who's done the song Dumb Blonde, and it's like, the joke's on you. I think that was what I was trying to get across. And this is all the stuff that I talk about in the book. Amazing. I cannot wait to read it. I've not had a day off since episode five. <laughs> so look, I mean, you're writing a book, but I want to know, is there a book that's changed your life? I mean, I've read quite a bit. Okay. The one that changed my mind and got me engrossed in having a spiritual practice is a book called The Celestine Prophecy, which is, it's like new age spirituality book. And it kind of dilutes a lot of old traditions of the universe and being open and receiving and loving. And it's things that I try to bring into my everyday. It was gifted to me when I was about 20 and I didn't read it but I read it when I was traveling and I think I don't take anything for granted and it's all because of things I learned in that really. Wow the power of literature is insane. I could talk about like books I've read in uni or whatever but I feel like that was the one that really transformed my my thought process from being quite an ungrateful teenager and I appreciate a lot more now and I'm very thankful for everything that my mum did when I was younger but I didn't appreciate it at that time like I took it for granted and I think Everything that's coming my way now, I'm open to it and I'm receiving it and I'm thankful and I'm grateful and it's there for me because it's ready for me. Ah, I love that. And you're present for it all, right? Because within gratitude, you're not always searching for the next thing. Exercise is a big one for me that I try to keep up. If I go for a run or if I do yoga, the constant thought in my mind is to be present in what's going on right then. Mm you are about to be travelling all around the world. That is a given and that is going to be your new life. But has there been a trip that's changed your life pre-drag race? I did do a lot of travelling, but I would say the trip that really changed me would probably be when I was in India and I did a yoga retreat, the yoga training, because it was I'd come out of a place of addiction and I was caught up in like the hedonism and I'd been taking a lot of drugs and I was not mentally in a good place and I remember like getting into yoga and really liking it and then went and did a retreat and that 28 days changed my life and all of those spiritual practices that I try to keep now has made me get to this point I believe and even like 
the partying before because I've learned a lot and I've lived and I've experienced mm. and I now take that into everything I do because, like I said, I don't take stuff for granted. So, like I said earlier as well, if I got this now when I was 21, different ball game. Like, I would probably mess it all up. Wow, yeah. It's, it's, if you met a human that's changed your life and we know about your mum, I'd like to hear someone else. My um, best friend, Ellie Tweed, who unfortunately passed her away when she was 18, and I was 18 as well, and she was such an optimistic, positive person, and she was wise before her age. She was so loving, but she was also a bad bitch, which (laughs) can't be forgotten. And she was always up for a laugh, always up for having fun, but she taught me as well to just be kind to everyone and... She was always with a smile. Everyone knew us as Tommy and Tweed back in our hometown. Everything she kind of taught me about being human and and loving people and being kind, it all comes from Ellie Tweed, and I love her. What do you think she'd think of what you've become? I've had messages from Ellie's family and friends, and they are all like, she'd be with you or she'd be so proud of you. And She was like the first person I think I felt got me. She just understood who I was and she kind of protected me and like allowed me to flourish. I think that's just what I always try to give to people as well. Wow. That's a legacy in itself, right? Yeah, she left a massive legacy. Have you ever felt a love that's taught you the biggest lesson? Probably when I got caught up in all of the drugs, I think losing who I was or sight of who I was taught me the biggest lesson and it was because I hated me or there was like things that I was like not proud of and they would all come up when you'd be on a come down and I think like coming out of that and learning to accept me was the biggest lesson I think because I didn't like myself and it took me years to get to this point and I think everyone has moments where they're not proud of who they are or they feel like they're not good enough and I think learning that I am was the biggest thing for me. I'm so crazy proud of you. And I think it was such an amazing thing to watch you shine that brightly. Thank you. So deserved. Now cry, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, I just want to end all of this with a song, a track that soundtracks your life. Can I have an album? Oh, an album. Yeah, go on then. Ray of Light, Madonna. Ah, of course. (laughs) Such a good album. From start to finish, I'll listen to that album at least once a week. Nothing Really Matters is one of the best songs One of the best songs ever. And the video, Unreal. I think that album, from start to finish, it always just lifts me up. I love you. I love that you've taken time to talk to me. I'm so proud and I cannot wait to watch what you do next. Thank you so much for having me. I love you lots. Well, that was bloody marvellous. Bimini for PM. They've really shown that with your platform and voice, you can keep the conversation going and step by step break down the meaning of gender. Bimini is an absolute hero. In the next episode, my hero is comedian Rosie Jones. Fine, you're already looking. I've already got your attention. Let's make this a positive experience. So even before comedy, I will be the one cracking jokes at myself or at my disability. 
So, yay, cold shade people going. Ow, ow, she's disabled, but she's intelligent, but she's funny. Please join me. See you next week.